Today on episode number 218 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Alan Levine shares how he creates courses as stories. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Joining me on today's episode is Alan Levine, who I have admired for a long time and I'm so glad to have him on today's episode. Alan Levine is recognized for applying new technologies to education. He is a pioneer in the web since the early 90s and an early proponent of blogs and RSS, which is Real Simple Syndication. Alan shares his ideas and discoveries at Cog Dog Blog, which is totally worth a look. Among his recent interests are new forms of web storytelling, as you'll hear about in today's episode, and creativity, including 50 Plus, Web 2.0, Ways to Tell a Story, Petcha Flickr, and Storybox. Leading and teaching the Open Digital Storytelling class, DS106, teaching and building sites for connected courses like networked narratives, and unleashing these strange things called splots. You can read more of Alan's impressive and eclectic biography at teachinginhighered.com slash 218. But before I bring him on the show, I want to mention his personal interests include digital photography, bending WordPress to his whims, and randomly dipping into the infinite rivers of the internet. Alan, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Awesome. It's great to be here. I'm honored. I have been following your work for so long and... One of the things that has come up more recently is your net narratives class. And I really want to focus in on that a lot today. But before I get too excited and start diving down into some of the details, could you just talk a little bit about how it came about and some of the ways that it's different from quote unquote normal classes? Sure. It it really came about from uh, my colleague the first time we taught it in 2017, Mia Zamora, who does a lot of um, electronic literature and great work at uh, Kane University in Union, New Jersey. And we got to know each other through a digital media lab project. And she started uh, messaging me that she would be interested in sort of uh, co-teaching a class that would combine um, elements that she teaches in electronic literature with stuff that I've been doing with media in DS-106. And we had some back and forth over the summer, and then we um, met at the DML conference. And uh, we just were at this table, and we were, like, throwing around so many wild ideas. People were coming over to see what all the commotion was. We just gelled a lot of uh, creative ideas. The, the metaphor of alchemy uh, kind of came out of that and wanting to be playful and mysterious. It came from that. And because of some of the ways, and I'll talk more about the format in which it taught, um, we had a lot of latitude um, to be creative in, in the class structure. Tell me more about alchemy and how that for you to just came to represent that playfulness. I've sort of been on the digital storytelling thing since the, the mid-90s, and it's been a thing that I, I've 
kind of woven in everything I do. And, and definitely it came into with DS106. We, we were talking about early that there always seems to be people want to talk about what makes stories work. You know, why are stories important? And you know, they show the cave walls and, and they talk about campfires. And so we started saying like, what if we pretend there's like this magic, magic sort of element or potion or essence that we can't fully understand, but we start to harness it? And so that somehow led to thinking about the idea of, of alchemy as sort of uh, a metaphor for experimenting um, and trying to create things with digital uh, content as opposed to air, earth, fire, and water. My knowledge of alchemy was not very deep, um, just enough to sort of latch on to that um, as a metaphor. And this is kind of come into the way I go about my projects. You know, some of my other projects that I've been involved with, um, two of them with this professional development project in Mexico at the University of Guadalajara. The first time we went there, um, we're talking about like the broad aims of the program. And, you know, I was responsible for building the website and design, helping design the program. It's like, wait a minute, we can't start until we have a metaphor. I can't do anything. Yeah. Yeah. So I have the thing to wrap, weave and tie everything to almost, I think a lot too in film and the idea of continuity. Mm -hmm. um, so it's got to be something that, you know, you want to, you know, you're flexible that you can, you know, bend and weave with it, but you can also sort of, it ties it together from beginning to end. That really, to me, just exemplifies what you are so gifted at doing bending things, stretching them, changing them, yet there still is something holding it together. And that, I don't think that's easy. To me, it's kind of fun. And I would say like the internet, especially Twitter, was just made for kids like me who were labeled smart asses in school mm -hmm. um, or just got in trouble because they did everything that was sarcasm. And um, it's just an ideal place to be able to um, play with the ideas and like, you know, oh, is he pretending or is he real? And, and or to, you know, wear different, you know, identities. And so it's, it just seems kind of natural. One of the places that you do that on your site, and of course, I want to hear more about just this framework that you use, but I can't resist talking about in the upper right hand corner, you have what for listeners, in case you're not familiar with this term, a hamburger menu, and you've probably seen a hamburger menu, you just might not know that that's what it's called. So on mobile devices, in particular, if the menu is too big to show all the way across a screen, then they've now transferred that to be little three horizontal lines stacked right up on each other. And we now have, most of us have been trained, oh, that's something I could click on and then it drops down. And so you have in the upper right-hand corner a, a hamburger menu. So I know instantly, oh, I can go click on that. But then right next to it, you have the words, do not click. You're, I think, the first one who asked me directly about that. Uh, and, and, you, and actually, I love that you, you know it's the hamburger menu, of course, because you're in the field. But I think it's, it's in this WordPress theme that I use. And um, I, I used it on another site. And um, I found that people didn't – saw a lot. I knew what it's, that it's a menu indicator, but some people didn't. Yep, yep. So I started fiddling with the CSS and the theme for the site just to put a little open – uh, text next to it so people get a little idea that it's something to click and then just with the whole uh, idea with net NAR about trying to make it mysterious it just was like this funny thing for me uh, if you say do not click I would think a lot of people will click and then <laughs> I forget sometimes I would change the content in there and actually there's probably some bad links now but I would throw like some message in like you know congratulations you've proven you know your ability to um, to click and explore and 
so it was a little bit, um, there's some places where you can do stuff that aren't essential. And um, I've been wanting to write about this for a while. And Mia and I did this. Um, every week we did these series of short intro videos. And generally videos are, I mean, most teachers think they're content or they're introductions. And so we did these videos that were really non-essential. We just were creating the story element. And so we would get together once a week on like a Sunday or a weekend. And I would tell Mia, okay, you're going to pretend that this box on your desk is sort of affecting your brain. And we would just ad lib. And um, over time, we improv the story that there were these um, alchemists from another dimension who were trying to hack us. And so that whole story emerged as we went along. But those videos we did were totally non-essential to the course. But for me and I, it kind of helped us while well, we talked, you know, we got together every week to talk about it. But it kind of gave us, again, that, that thread that we wanted to tie our course to instead of the, the driving thing of a course being the syllabus. And that's what I've been wanting to write about is that having a plot drive your course rather than the syllabus. Talk more about that because share with us the structure then. So that I love this idea that we don't have to take ourselves so seriously guess what? There are going to be non-essential elements of our class and we can be more playful with them. If we try to act like every word that we might assign in some way is, is sacred, then it really diminishes the value of that, that which really is fundamental. So tell us then a little bit more about how did you, what were some of the plot points to use your analogy in the course? And then how, how did you bend it and, and make it more flexible as you went? And again, I'll, I'll credit Mia. She introduced me to this idea of a course spine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, talk about that. We do have a syllabus, and it's got policies and, and important information, but it doesn't have the like the course sliced and diced into these weak, weak chunks with readings, etc. Not to say that that's not important. And so we do have some latitude with this course because it is a creative course. And honestly, the spine is basically we set aside like these periods that were generally about a month that we wanted to have um, these broad themes. So the first two weeks are always just like getting set up and oriented because students are creating social media accounts and setting up blogs and getting to understand how we work. But then the, the first theme was we did something like digital art. And so we knew we wanted to do four weeks of activities and conversations around digital art. And then the next one was something about um, connecting to the world. And the third one was this concept that we called the mirror world, where we explored a parallel universe that the students inhabited. So we just set those out broadly in the beginning as like these general things we knew we wanted to do. But largely, we were kind of inventing, we had some things that we knew we had planned. And so um, one thing that worked really well, we had these, um, in February, we had these weekly studio visits. So we would, rather than inviting guest experts to come into our course to present, we would go in and have conversations by Google Hangout. So we, we met with Leonardo Flores in Puerto Rico, who's an e-poetry expert. We had, oh, I'm forgetting the names of the, the two women who run a um, great uh, podcast on fan fiction, and Howard Rheingold and his daughter. And so... Um, it was a chance to bring some voices into the class, but not in, in more in a conversational mode like we're doing now. And then in March, we had these uh, virtual bus tours. So we set up times for um, our students to visit other students in other classes. So a 
one with a colleague in Mexico, and we did Mahabali in Egypt, and my friend Kate Bells in Australia, um, sort of with a general theme that we wanted to talk about, but also a chance for students to talk to um, other students in the other part of the world. And here's the thing I learned from this experience. Around the world, the most common topic that came up as a problem at schools was parking on campus. <laughs> no matter where you go, there's some things we have in common. At least in at least in you know New Jersey, Mexico, um, Cairo, and um, um, Australia. That's really funny. I work at a small private institution. It's I don't actually know the acreage, but it's very small. So I I do chuckle at my students who are like, "Oh, the parking," and I'm like. Oh, did you did you have to walk three minutes instead of two to get to your class? And I also want to take them over to the University of California, Irvine, where I used to work, and be like, "Now that that is a parking problem where you're going to spend 25 minutes to walk to your class. That's a little different. So, or take a shuttle on your way there. Yes. Oh, that's great. And I, I'm I want to step just back a little bit when you talk about virtual bus tours. What most of us would have called that was. A webinar, or what we what would that normally be called? A a guest speaker. You know that we we have these words that we have created in academia, and they don't generate any sort of excitement or sense of anticipation. But the moment I heard a virtual bus tour, I just wanted to join. I didn't I didn't know anything about it, but it just sounds fun and interesting, and like we might go somewhere cool. And we did have um, we did have sort of activities that kind of were done before. So I run this like a version of the DS106 Daily Create, where there's a daily media exercise. And some of the ideas for that came out of a conversation with a colleague, uh, Jeff Javalt, who um, just retired from running the Vermont Young Writers Project. And he had talked about this thing. We wanted to sort of, you know, it was 2016. The, the election stuff was looming. We wanted to roll some civic imagination things into the course. But he had, in the conversation when we were playing, of course, he had talked about sort of this idea about people sharing what's important about the place they live, you know, their neighborhood. And, and you know, he talked about some experience with connecting kids in Vermont with kids in, in urban um, North New Jersey, and they had common bonding over things like trees in their neighborhoods. So we wanted to think about what people could talk about. So like for the Mexico visit, we had, we had a food theme. So we had a, a photo exercise where people took a picture of their um, their spice cabinet. So we talked about different spices that people have. And then we asked them, you know, what's your favorite local restaurant? Then we have, you know, for the, the students in Mexico, we asked them to look up, you know, like Union in Jersey and try to find a good restaurant. And then ask the kids, is that place really good? And they'd be like, no, that's terrible. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's assembly line food. And so doing some things of connecting over that for part of the visit. But in that one, there was this really beautiful moment where one of our students asked the students in Mexico, just like, how does it feel to hear the stuff that's coming out of the United States uh, about Mexico? And um, there was like this audible pause. And then they gave this really beautiful kind of honest, but genuine response. And that was really a a beautiful moment um, in terms of um, getting people to talk to each other face-to-face and, and not, you know, just at this level of, of shouting across social media. Um, and so the more things we can, I think, get people to understand each other, that sounds like, you know, kumbaya sort of thing. And then this great moment happened, Bonnie. They, you know, these were uh, a class, they were sitting in the professor Laura's office in uh, Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. And so we could see on the wall, 
it was very bright. There was sunlight coming in. And we were, my students were in Keene, New Jersey, where it was like snow outside. And someone asked, said, show us what's outside your window, just mm. totally spontaneously. And we could see one of the students took us down the hallway. We could see she was cradling her iPad like she was hugging us. And then she walked out on this patio and showed us the view out towards the beach. And then they were like, show us out your window. And our students are turning the laptop of the hangout to show the snow and the cold. <laughs> I mean, that's really simple. Yeah. But again, for, for people to connect over commonalities, and, and that was one of the goals we wanted to aim at for the course is just instead of thinking about the world through these um, headline news stories, think about it through the experiences that, that people have living in these different communities. I took a critical pedagogy class from Sean Michael Morris, and he had us do something similar where just show us the space in which you're, I don't know what the words he used, but you're basically taking this class. And that, it, that was you know, not something as grand as what you just described, but it made it to me feel a little bit more that we could connect with each other, that we're not just this, you know, trying, no, no one who would sign up for a class like that is just trying to get through it because you wouldn't do it otherwise. But I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about DS106, the Daily Create, as a potential way to help those of us that feel ill-equipped to do this kind of yeah. creative work, that, that we might just be, be able to gradually build on these small exercises. Yeah, it's, it's, well, there's so many things I love about DS106, but um, that's one of my favorites, and I've used it uh, in so many uh, projects. It, it came in the beginning because in, in DS106, we start with teaching, telling stories through pictures and, and helping people improve their own photographic skills. Mm -hmm. and, um, there was a thing that was going on at the time by two professional photographers called The Daily Shoot. And so every day, their site would publish a challenge, like, you know, take a picture of contrasting colors or take a picture that shows converging lines. So it was kind of something I was doing my own daily photo project, but this kind of gave you a specific thing to look for. And then you participated by replying in Twitter. So we used it for a year or two in DS106 when teaching visual skills, and then they stopped doing it. I think they got tired or they just, the photographers moved on. And so we got this idea, like, what if we build our own? And Tim Owens, who was at UMW at the time, did the first version of the Daily Create. And so instead of just being visual, we kind of made it around different kind of media themes. And so since then, I've kind of rewrote it as a generic WordPress theme that anybody can use. But the idea is basically every day it published, you schedule a couple days in advance, um, different kind of challenge. Um, for my students, when I'm teaching, I'll say, you know, your requirement is to do three daily whatever's a week in net narrative's daily alchemies. And so they get, they get to pick the ones that they do and they're low stakes. So they're not, my frame is it should be something you can do in 15 minutes. Like you read it in the morning, you think about it, you can go take that picture or you can mash up two you know, sounds together or you can, you know, write a, you know, a haiku. And so in some ways they're meant just to have people try some things they haven't done before, but also get creative with how they interpret it. And since they're not really graded, it, it doesn't really matter. So it's low stakes. And, and generally, there's like this arc of excitement that students get to. And then I find about two thirds of the way in the semester, it starts to become a chore. Mm -hmm. And so I start to drop it off a, as a requirement. But generally, I do things like during the semester, you have to contribute because there's a form where people can make 
their own um, two dailies um, to the mix. And so they get to see their, their challenge come out of it. But I just think the whole idea of um, having sort of um, something small that you do every day to practice getting better at something, whether it's, you know, media, music, uh, talking to an interviewer, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, whatever you want to get better at, you get better at by just practicing and, and not like rote practicing, but stuff where you're kind of free to explore. And so, um, you know, I try to pay attention when I'm teaching, when it starts to look like it's becoming a chore to the students. One of the key things you just pointed out, it isn't necessarily just the practice, but something happening after the practice, whether that's some form of feedback or an opportunity to revisit that in some way. I, I think that's essential. I mean, you, you talk about interviewing or <laughs> podcasting or whatever it is. Sometimes it looks easy. Like I, I will say I go and I look at some of these. And by the way, we haven't mentioned DS stands for digital storytelling. So this is a class that I don't remember exactly what year it was started. 2014. Is that? 2011 was oh. the first open. Okay, so this has been around for a long time and various iterations of it have been taught, but it's also an open class. So it's, you know, there are people who signed up for this at an institution, but then people like me could join in, whether it was for a single daily create or to witness other people <laughs> creating daily create and never put something out there of my own, but just this idea of practicing and, and then that we don't have to do it every day. So it's called the daily create, but I could say, well, I'll just try one or, or that kind of thing. What are some of the ways that feedback then happens as whether your students are doing the daily create or they're doing other things in your class? Talk about how their practice is informed by feedback from you, from me, and, and from the world at large. A lot of it happens because, um, you know, generally, you know, in DS106, we had, and honestly, it sort of waned off in a couple of years, maybe because people know about it. But the year I started was the first open one. I was a participant and there was a lot of co-mingling of, of the open participants. And so that alone is an interesting element. In that NAR, I mean, we've had luckily through our contacts sometimes maybe five to 10 to 20 open participants, which is not massive, <laughs> but these are people enough. And there's a guy, uh, Kevin Hodgson, uh, he's at Dog Tracks on Twitter He's heavily involved in CL MOOC. Um, he's a sixth grade teacher, a musician, and that guy, he comments voraciously. He gives students feedback. I think just that um, aspect of the class being more than the people in the room, even if it's a virtual room, is a radically different experience for students. And so, you know, that's why for all of some of its warts and pains that you know, Twitter works really well that we're able often for students to sort of expand their interaction and get feedback support from people um, outside the class. And with any class, so the, the thing you want to cultivate is people kind of playing off of each other in terms of um, things and, and not like, oh, you have to do three comments per week, which I, I hate doing. Mm. Sometimes you can, you know, I'll design media assignments that require them to build off of someone else's work or try to come with some ways that doesn't force people, but makes them have to leverage their work off of the work that other people in the community are doing. I'll have to go find it because I'm not seeing it right away, but I really appreciate the way that you introduce people in the very beginning 
to these opportunities to engage. And again, I will link to this because it's just masterful, but it it reminds me a little bit, I don't want to minimize it, but it reminds me a little bit of a choose your own adventure kind of style. So I go in and, you know, I'm being introduced, which for I'm sure some of the students that you encountered, this is just entirely new. And it says, oh, you know, do you already use Twitter? And do you want to use your account? Great, click here. Do you want to use Twitter, but do you want to use a fictitious account? Well, that's kind of interesting. I use Twitter, but I've never thought about having an alternate ego on there. Let me look at what that's about. Do you not use Twitter, but you'd like to? So I I really need to be oriented to what this place is all about. Or do you um, not use Twitter and don't want to? So could you talk a little bit about... Well, I think the first one's obvious. <laughs> I use Twitter, and so I'm going to engage that way. But could you talk about fictitious accounts and how they might enrich someone's learning? And then we'll go through the other two as well. Sure, sure. And that, that's a, a part of the setup of the course because we want students to create Twitter accounts. We had them create hypothesis accounts and then um, in blogs, and they have to figure out things like RSS feeds. So it's a lot to do. So breaking it down into a series of questions uh, and plus giving them options instead of mandating. So... My last time around, most of my students, I'd say three quarters, had Twitter accounts. It wasn't like Twitter was new to them. I, I do like to say for people who haven't done it before or maybe know of it but haven't created an account, that when they just do some thinking ahead of time, the handle that you choose, the at, that's something you're kind of stuck with. And so you don't have to use your name or identifying information. Or you know, when you set up your blog, don't call it like, you know, net our blog 18 or something the name is like a great opportunity to be creative i always nag my students about making creative blog post titles like don't bore me with your title but with their name there's no reason for this class that they have to identify use bonnie in your name and so generally a lot of students have nicknames they use in other spaces or they're free um, to pick something else and so you know, okay, I, I see about half my students will do something creative and some of them will use their name, but I really want to give them uh, the options because it's not really important in the Twitter space for us to know who they are and to give them experience to figure out how much they want to reveal as they go. If they want to put, you know, their name, not on the at part, but on the profile name or not, and what they want to put in their profile, they can be mysterious. And the thing that we did the first year, Mia, and I taught the course in the mirror world part, there was a whole choosing characters and they had to create a second Twitter account that was their alchemist alternative character that had to have a creative name. So we had a couple like meme generators um, and it was really fun to see the creative names they came up with. Again, I just you know want to make sure that we're not forcing people to do Twitter and honestly, you know, actually, I never had students say I didn't want to do it. And I really only had one quasi-negative experience with kind of a, a creepy character who was doing some commenting. And um, basically, one of my students told me about it. We had a conversation. And basically, it was, don't respond to this person, block them, and don't engage them because that will enrage them. And I think they got bored, whoever it was, and they disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been very fortunate in, in that aspect. But, you know, I'm rather vigilant about watching for that stuff. And with regards to blogging, has it been the same experience as well that people are willing to give it a try? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, at, at Kane, especially in the um, the writing studies program where this is situated, they have a fair number of classes for students. It's not necessarily new to them. Sometimes it's more assignment-y than uh, what we were doing. 
but a fair number, half it generally is pretty new. And so, you know, they start with, this is my blog post. And, 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 you know, by the end of the semester, um, you know, I've seen some wonderful growth in terms of what I want them to be doing is um, less writing about here's my assignment and more writing about this is why I chose to do it. Um, this is where I got my materials from. This is my influences. This is what I was hoping to achieve. This is what worked. This is what didn't work. I want them to be writing about their process, not just showing me their media piece that they created. And so um, getting students to stop writing like it's a homework assignment and, and more to, you know, I, I, I've had one student um, who just was remarkable in her ability. She had like, she's got a whole kind of writing voice and a kind of a, style with cross outs of, of words and, and, and playfulness in the writing that um, is really a gem to see. Um, but, you know, for people new to it, and I, you know, my own self is like, it took me like three or four years blogging before I kind of found um, a, a way that was more me than me just writing into a box. I'm embarrassed as I reflect back on my teaching. I started teaching educators probably four or so years ago, and I didn't have the appreciation for those who would just be vehemently against any kind of sharing. And I'm much better at it now. But where I want to take myself even further is for there to be a real rich opportunity to share in a more private way. And so that's why I'm enjoying I mean, I think one of the things that I need to work on doing is to try to do some of my teaching outside of the learning management system. Because if I try to have it there, I mean, it is, I, I will say, it is nice because they're used to it, you know, having assignment dates in there, and then they can subscribe to the calendars and have it show up in their calendars. There's a lot, a lot of benefits to providing, you talk about this spine, have some of the spine within an LMS, particularly some of the dates, things that have points associated with them. I'm, I'm not opposed to that. But since I'm trying to get them to unlearn some of this stuff, like you're saying, I don't want it to sound like a homework assignment. I, I want to get you to think about me less as an authority in your life. And I don't, you know, I want to mix up our thoughts of what it means to be a teacher, what it means to be a student. And so I think if I could put it in something like a WordPress like you and have it more where they could prescribe how they want to use it, but then I've got to really improve. Okay, so what is the option for people who don't want to be on Twitter, they don't want to blog in a public way, where where can I send them so that it can still be a rich experience? I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah, and it's because I did listen to your your episode with your student who was talking about that. You know how the LMS really helps her, and I have yeah. the thing is to me the reason I my courses do this openness thing is because. I want my students to have the experience of the network and, and understand it. The network is an ad. It's not just, I'm doing this because it's cool to be doing this in the open and I hate the LMS. You know, our course is called Network Narratives. We're trying to understand how storytelling is enhanced when it takes place in a network environment. Mm -hmm. and so that's part of the curriculum or the design that, that we wanted to do. You know, if I was teaching a, I don't know, a course in mineralogy, I'd have to think about what is it that my students are gaining? Are they connecting with experts around the world? Are they using open research? Are they publishing things that other people are going to use? So, you know, it has to have a purpose um, to be in the open space. And as far as the alternatives, I always had some thoughts if a student did say they didn't want to do a Twitter. So first of all, you don't need a Twitter account to read Twitter. So you can still participate in Twitter, unlike some of the other 
big name social media platforms. So it's not like they couldn't get part of that experience. And, and I would probably think of some other way that I want them. And so on the daily site, when they respond to something, they respond to a Twitter account with a hashtag and that's how it goes to the site. They didn't want to do that. There's a comment thing at the bottom and they, they could still participate in the daily things without having a, you know, an account or you could have them write up their stuff in, in, in a different site. And, you know, there are cases and, you know, I, I've had students in previous classes. I had one student who was being an abusive spouse who was stalking her. And we had to talk about things like, you know, spoofing your IP. And, and it's, it's like you find a way. And it don't make everything so prescribed that it has to be done in one way. That's that's my motto. It also ends up being a lot of work. I've started to use discussion boards just a little bit more. I, I, I can't stand them, actually, because talk about having to unlearn things. They're just notoriously bad. And we've just ingrained, you know, re- reply to three others. And I just, uh Anyway, I will use that as a means for sharing publicly to the class. So share your reflection paper there. But... You know, if they don't want to then copy that and put it on their blog, they don't necessarily have to. So just options, different different levels of types of sharing. But um, I, I didn't realize that you could read Twitter without having a Twitter account. So that's an interesting thing for me to think about, too, because sometimes there are legitimate reasons to not want to be on social media. Absolutely. And then there are fears that are not substantiated that if you could see what was happening there, it might actually be interesting to you. So that, that that's a neat thing for me to contemplate a little bit about. Yeah, I mean, you don't get a stream, but, you know, someone could, you know, follow the link to, um, you know, set up a link to a search stream with the class hashtag, and they, they can see what's going on. Mm. Think of some other way, you know, and also the thing I use a lot, I use email a lot, I, you know, and, and sometimes we have discussions back and forth by email, you know, it works. And so there's, there's lots of uh, possibilities for the way um, you can interact with, with the students. And I, I should add the, the unique thing about the class, the first year I taught it, Mia was on the ground with the class. They met in a classroom in New Jersey. I was co-teaching remotely from where I was living in Arizona. So I would come in by Google Hangout and I was just like this head on the wall. <laughs> and, um, we did this thing. I had a, a conference I went to in Toronto um, in late April and I knew from past travel that there's a direct flight from downtown Toronto into Newark. So me and I planned this thing where we didn't tell our students. And I showed up in person and, and kind of popped out of the closet in the classroom. And um, the looks on their faces. And I don't know, it was one of my most precious moments in teaching. And then this past year, Mia had a Fulbright fellowship in Norway. But she arranged that I could still teach this class remotely. And two of our previous students were my TAs in the class, and Haley and Marissa were instrumental in, in facilitating. Um, it was really hard, and I would not want to do it that way again. It's really hard to read the room. And I just had to rethink most of the ways I did stuff, and most of the stuff we did in class time was, was activities that we designed and conversations. We did Twitter chats. We did live hangouts. There was very little me talking to them. This is the point in the show where we each get to give some recommendations. And I wanted to give two recommendations. One I already mentioned, and that is go to the link that I'll have in the show notes. 
and click on the do not click in the net narratives class and click on it for a number of reasons. One, just to see this kind of course design where there's, if you go and look in the main body of his site, there's definitely structure, there's check, there's checklists, checklists, a good way to, there, there's the spine idea that's throughout it, but then there's this playfulness and the sense of the unexpected and you will be surprised how much you can be inspired by this course. So go go click on the do not click. And the second one is I wanted to recommend a blog, but actually it was a keynote given by Sean Michael Morris at the University of Warwick. It's entitled Imagination as a Precision Tool for Change. And I ended up reading his article of all places in Chuck E. Cheese, which you know is where all the greatest intellectual work happens, <laughs> which if, if anyone's not aware of that because you're outside the U.S. and you have not been exposed to this level of hell, <laughs> this is a children's pizza restaurant where there's just games and overstimulated children and all this stuff. And I'm sitting there just weeping as I'm reading this beautiful, beautiful post and just thinking about my own failures in teaching. It was a, a very moving uh, work. It's definitely worth a read, but uh, maybe read it when you've got tissues around and when you're not in the middle <laughs> of Chuck E. Cheese, because it's uh, going to take you on a trip. A, a really great post. That's how good Sean is. He can still get you to, to feel that deep emotionally. You know, one of my courses is about media. And so, you know, um, I basically went through my pinboard bookmarks um, about two interesting tools that I, that I came across. Um, there's this one called Descript, D-E-S-D-E-Script.com. And I mean, you already do audio transcription, but it is um, it is a fee-based service, so I probably wouldn't use it because I don't have a budget. But what I liked about it, they had this interesting concept is that you submit your audio, it gets annotated. When you get it back, you can actually edit the audio by editing the annotated text. So you remove a paragraph and it disappears from the audio. And that really intrigues me um, as a way of editing because... Audio is the thing that people really struggle with. Um, and until they understand that you manipulate audio like text that you copy and paste and apply styles, audio is very intimidating. And the other one is this tool called Inkle Writer, I-N-K-L-E Writer, which comes from inklestudios.com slash ink. It's sort of an open source web tool for building choose-your-own-adventure games, which are some things that we explored um, in Network Narratives. It replaced... And I'm forgetting, there was, there was another free tool that was really good for it, easier to use than Twine for doing these. So you basically can create these choose-your-own-adventure games by editing a text file. So there's certain codes for, for indicating when someone's making a choice. Um, but basically, these developers who use it for their commercial, I think their mobile games, um, release it as open source. So um, I'm always looking out for different kinds of relatively simple tools that people can do interesting things with. Well, it has been hard to keep myself only somewhat within the time of our interview because I so enjoy just getting to watch your work. And um, just thank you so much for your time today and for listening to the episodes that you did and just being a part of this conversation. And thank you very much. I've, I've been uh, eager to be on the show. What an honor it has been today to have the opportunity to talk to Alan Levine. You are such a creative educator, and I feel like creative doesn't even do it justice. Thank you so much for how you inspire us and teach your courses in such an open way that we can actually digest some of it and use it in our classes as well. And thanks to all of you for listening and to being a part of the Teaching in Higher Ed community. 
If you want to get all the links to the great stuff that Alan shared, and I've got a lot of them this week, you'll want to be on the weekly email. And you can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And if you haven't been on the website in a while, you might want to check out the recommendations. It's teachinginhighered.com slash recommendations. And Sierra and I are working on compiling all the recommendations that have ever been made on the show. So go check it out and see what's there. Maybe pick up a book or some music or a movie. See you next week. Bye.